Most of the times when we're serving the Lord, we plan one thing and God has other things, and they're always better. You know that we have two sites, and uh, for the summer we decided to uh, combine both sites in Feltonville, where we have a building, and uh, in our West Philly University City site, we're looking for a morning space, and we're actually trying to negotiate right now getting another building. I just uh, wrote them and asked them to give it to us, so uh, we'll see how that goes. But... Uh, <clears throat> At our building in Feltonville, which is sort of a little bit beyond North Philly, we're in a 50% Hispanic neighborhood and uh, almost came to a point where we decided to close that site and just focus on West Philly alone and actually made the decision to do that and then reversed that decision. And after we reversed that decision, God answered a prayer that we've had for a while, and that is that God would bring our way a Spanish-speaking pastor who has good theology. Uh, we had many opportunity, opportunities to bring uh, Spanish pastors in, but not always theologically aligned. And uh, God brought us Rolando Diaz. Uh, he's Dominican. He was actually church planning in our neighborhood, meeting in a home, and uh, he was teaching his people the Westminster Confession of Faith, which uh, says something about a, uh, uh, a Spanish pastor. Very reformed, very passionate about uh, reaching people, and uh, you know, we met, we, we just fell in love with him, and he fell in love with us, and uh, bang, we're one. He's one of the elders at Grace Church now. And uh, consequently, you know, we have a number of French-speaking people uh, in, at that site also. And now with an influx of Spanish-speaking people, we needed to uh, invest in a translation system. So now uh, when you come in on Sunday morning, if you speak French or Spanish, uh, you get a little receiver and a headset and you can turn channel one uh, for Spanish, channel two for French. Uh, one of our elders is hoping one day channel three will be Swahili. And, uh, but it actually has the capability of 17 different channels uh, on that. But, uh, so we have live translators sitting in booths up on the uh, balcony. And uh, if I'm preaching in English, then it's being translated into French and Spanish. When our Spanish pastor preached for three weeks, then I sat with a headset on, uh, listening to it being translated into English. And uh, so that, that's just a gift from God. But with him, uh, we adopt a church plant in Allentown, Pennsylvania, which is another Spanish-speaking church plant, which uh, is, as of the 21st of August will be, become part of Grace Church of Philly in Allentown. Uh, and then a few weeks ago, uh, I rode up with three of our elders, including Rolando, to Bronx, New York. And uh, as I'm riding up there, I'm thinking, you know, I, I'm a minority. I've got a Kenyan elder, a Cameroonian elder, and a Dominican elder, and 
myself going up to Bronx, New York to meet with a group of people in an apartment, about 20 people, uh, that want to plant a church uh, there. So we worshiped and I preached on the gospel and we shared the Lord's table together. And so that's, you know, a developing church plant in the Bronx. And I have the feeling that Rolando will wear us out because he has uh, all of these ideas of where to plant churches and uh, but we're thankful for what 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 the Lord is is doing and thank you for making it your part in making that possible so tonight Romans chapter 6 I'll be looking at uh, 14 first 14 verses Romans chapter 6 Let me read God's word. I'm reading out of the uh, English Standard Version. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him, For the death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. So, you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law, but under grace. Grace is... It's a difficult concept. It really is. The world has a difficult time understanding something that can be free, something as great as salvation. It's difficult, not only for the world, though, it's difficult for us who have experienced grace to actually accept grace and live out that grace in our life. It's probably one of the most simple yet complex, difficult things to understand in the Christian life. It is misunderstood. It is misapplied. 
As you know, Romans 5 explains very carefully why justification before God can only be by what we call grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. That's what salvation is. That is how we are accepted, justified before God. And Romans 1 through 5 explains why that must be. Because we are hopelessly and helplessly lost and enslaved by sin so that only a divine rescue can bring us from death to life. Only through the death and resurrection of Christ can we be rescued from the enslavement of sin. Back in chapter 5, Paul explained that the law could never save. The reason it could never save wasn't because there was something wrong with the law, but because there was something wrong with us. We are incapable of meeting the righteous demands of the law. And so instead of the law becoming a means of salvation, the law instead, instead serves to increase our awareness of our inability of our sin before God. The law's purpose is to show us our need of grace. Romans 5.20, Paul put it this way. Now the law came to increase the trespass. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. And apparently it's that statement that Paul is addressing, at least the misunderstanding of that statement in Romans chapter 6. Where sin abounded, grace abounded more. And so some would say, what shall we say then? If where sin abounds, grace abounds more, are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? Should I keep on sinning so that I can experience the greater grace of God? But Paul will make clear that the question misses his point in Romans chapter 5. Paul's point wasn't that the more you sin, the more you experience grace. His point was more historical, redemptively historical. That the law came and it exposed the greatness, the horror of human sin. And then the cross came and expressed the abundance of the grace of God. Grace abounded at the cross of Jesus Christ. That's where grace abounds. It's not that he's saying there is much more grace that you can get, you can experience that the more you sin, the more you can have the grace of God. That's not what he's saying. He's saying the law exposed sin for what it was, made it clear for what it was, and showed the greatness of sin. But then the cross came and showed the abundance of God's grace. The work of Jesus Christ is where we find this abundance of God's grace. You can't get any more than what you have in Jesus Christ. You can't get more grace. He is grace. And if you've been united to him through faith, then you've been united to this abounding grace. It's yours already. And Paul's going to say, believe it, accept it, reckon this to be true and live it out as a consequence. 
So the greatness of God's saving, abounding grace has been displayed at the cross. There is no more abundant grace than that which is shown in the substitutionary death of Jesus Christ for sinners. It's yours in Christ in its fullness. If you have Jesus, you have it all. So Paul argues the contrary. Rather than saving grace, giving us some sort of license to sin so that we can experience some kind of deeper grace of God, rather he argues that saving grace in Christ, if you've experienced this, raises another question. How can we that are dead to sin live any longer in it? It really raises the opposite question. If I really have grace, if I've experienced this abundant, abounding grace in Christ, then how can I continue in sin? How can we still live in it? The gospel calls us to a radical change of life, from death to life. From being a slave to sin to becoming a servant of righteousness. Grace is something that not only justifies you, but grace in itself has the power to sanctify you, to transform you. And again, this is where Christians get confused. Perhaps you're confused about How does this living out the Christian life work? Many would say that being a Christian means that you become more and more holy, sanctified. You become more and more righteous. And as you become sanctified, eventually you will at the end be justified. That God's final acceptance is contingent upon your progress in sanctification and obedience in your life. Now that's classic Catholicism, but that's also classic religion of any kind. That, you know, you really can't know what the end is like because the final Acceptance by God awaits him evaluating whether or not you've merited it, whether or not you're, 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 you're good enough for that. And so people who believe that sort of have in their mind, you know, I really can't know. I really don't, not sure that I have Jesus until I prove myself worthy. Others say that I'm saved by grace through faith in Christ alone. And after that, nothing really matters. Because I'm saved. I don't go to church. I don't read my Bible. I still live in sin. But, you know, I prayed that prayer. I walked that aisle. God accepts me. He loves me the way I am. And it really does not matter how I live. But Paul talks about a third way. Neither of those ways is the biblical way. You don't 
work your way to being accepted by God. And you don't have, possess a real acceptance by God that does not somehow impact your life. That doesn't bring you from death to life in some way. I like the way that Richard Gaffin, a theologian, put it. He said this. He said, there is no partial union with Christ. There is no sharing in only some of the benefits of Christ. If believers don't have the whole Christ, they have no Christ. Unless they share of all of his benefits, they share in none of them. Justification and sanctification are inseparable. If you have Jesus, then Jesus has made unto you wisdom, righteousness, redemption, sanctification. If you have Jesus, you have all of who he is. You cannot have him without him impacting your life. So my question tonight that I want to I was going to say briefly answer. I hope to do that, but I don't want to get up your hopes. So, but the question tonight that I want to answer is how does grace empower us to no longer live under the dominion of sin? That's what our text is talking about. How does grace empower us to no longer live under the dominion of sin? How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer? Therein. That's his question. And the first thing he does is he starts talking about baptism. So my first point is you need to know, experience, and live your baptism. But of course, our minds then go, well, what does that mean? Uh, Because it is a text in which the language has, we would say, some ambiguity to it, just in the Greek prepositions that are used. What does it mean to be baptized into Christ? But I would say it's an intentional ambiguity. Because the Bible speaks about baptism in different ways. There are at least four options in, as I understand it, that are available in the world to to understand the phrase baptized into his death. Some would say that it's water baptism that actually brings you into union with Christ. Now that would be the teaching of the New York Church of Christ, the Boston Church of Christ, the old Campbellite Church of Christ, Christian Church of the South, who all believe that when you actually go under the water, that the blood of Christ is applied to you, that it's in baptism that you are united to Christ in that outward physical act. I remember here on the streets of Brooklyn, Brooklyn having a conversation with a Church of Christ uh, uh, attendee one day or missionary and uh, I asked him, I said, you mean if I'm out here on the streets talking to people about Jesus and telling them about his great work and inviting them to come to Christ and believe and receive and have the gift of eternal life that they can't have it on this Saturday morning here in this corner? 
And his answer was, no, they have to be baptized. So some would say that that text is talking about that water baptism brings you into actual union with Christ. And we would say that's contrary to the whole of biblical theology. Some would say that this text is talking about spirit baptism. And that it's the baptism by the spirit that brings you into the body of Christ, the union with Christ. And I would say that that has biblical foundations to it. Others would say, thirdly, that what's being talked about here is their water baptism that represented their union with Christ. That he's referring them back to that physical act in their life when they actually were baptized, but they understood that the outward baptism was only a, a, an outward expression of the inward reality that, 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 that existed by faith in Christ. And I would say that has a biblical basis. Because of the ambiguity of the language and the general teaching on baptism in the New Testament, I would say it's a combination of two and three. That he's making them think about their union with Christ. That the key to living in victory over sin is understanding your union with Christ. How does that happen? And what tangible way is that reflected or demonstrated in life? And so I would say he's talking first about the reality of union. That by the Spirit, we are baptized into Christ. That it's the Spirit's work that brings us into union with Jesus Christ. Louis Burkhoff, a Reformed theologian, defines union with Christ in this way. He says that it's that intimate, vital, spiritual union between Christ and his people in virtue of which he is the source of their life their strength, of their blessedness, of their salvation. We are brought into union with Christ. But how does that happen? It happens by the work of the Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, who unites us to Christ, who unites us to the Father, so that we are one in Christ. That is the Spirit's work. 1 Corinthians 12, I would say, refers to that. For by one Spirit were you all baptized into one Body. This is what creates the church, the body of Jesus Christ. It's a real experience. It's not a second blessing. Because if you're waiting for the second blessing, then you probably don't have the first blessing. Because if you got the first blessing, then you got the blessing. If you got the first blessing, which is the Spirit of God coming into your life, making you alive, bringing you into union with Christ and all of the benefits of Christ, then you have everything. As Peter says, God's given you all things that pertain unto life and godliness. There's not something more that I need. If I have Jesus, I need to understand more of what I have in Jesus. I need to reckon that to be true. I need to live that out. But there's nothing more than what I have in union in Christ. I have it all already. That's the baptism of the Spirit, not a second blessing. 
It is the blessing. But for me, as I understand baptism, water baptism is the outward expression of that death to life. Water baptism expresses, it's a tangible symbol, and really tangible symbols create the memory, even more strongly sometimes than the inner reality. I look at my own experience. On September 10th, 1970, God grabbed hold of my heart, turned me toward himself, I repented of my sin. I I confessed Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. I believe that night, by the Spirit, I was brought into union with Jesus Christ. But I must tell you, I didn't see anything happen. I'm not sure I felt the Spirit bring me into union. I don't even know what that would feel like, though I did experience peace and joy. But I didn't, there's no tangible way that I could, you know, I didn't smell Holy Spirit fire. I didn't taste anything. But I believed God's word. I accepted the reality. And as time went on, the evidence was there that there was a life in me that wasn't there before that wanted different things. But later that year, I understood that I should publicly declare my union with Christ and with his people. And so the church set an evening for baptism. And I didn't know you weren't supposed to do this. I suspect you are supposed to do this. But I invited all of my old drug buddies. (laughs) And there was a row of... I I, I wouldn't say they they were hippies, because even though we had long hair and had the look, we we liked to fight too much to be hippies. So we we, we weren't peace-loving hippies. But there they sat. And, you know, they hadn't seen me around in a while. They'd heard, you know, that I had, you know, flipped out or something. (laughs) Really. But I do remember standing there that night with God's people and some of the world looking on and sharing what had happened in my life. And a couple of verses as a speed freak, you know, I lived in paranoia. And uh, so some of the first verses I learned were Psalm 34, 4. I sought the Lord and he heard me and delivered me from all my fears. In Psalm 27, 1, the Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the strength of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? I mean, these guys can remember days when, you know, I was shooting through the floors of houses down the shore because I thought there were people crawling around underneath trying to get me. But the fear was gone. And I remember my pastor, Paul Parr, taking me in 
putting me under that water, buried in the likeness of his death. Thankfully, he brought me out. I often say to people, if I really like you, I'll bring you back up. (laughs) But we always bring them back up. But bringing us back up into a declaration of new life in Jesus Christ. Now, I tangibly remember that much more clearly. I mean, I remember the evening I got saved, but it wasn't something that I could really put my finger on. It wasn't a tangible experience, but my water baptism, that was my public declaration. You know, I got saved sitting on the edge of a porcelain bathtub uh, on a house on 219 East Rockland Street in Philly. It was just my dad and I. But this was my declaration. I am in union with Christ and with his people. This is important. So Paul is saying, know your baptism. Not just the reality of the inward union with Christ. But that tangible, meaningful experience that's part of your life where you identified with him. You were baptized into his death. That is his death on the cross. His victory over sin. He breaks the power of sin. He pays the penalty of sin. This is yours if you're in Christ. Your relationship to sin is completely changed. Because you are now dead to sin. And you've experienced that. Because the Spirit of God has brought you into union with Christ. And you've declared that in a tangible way in the waters of a baptism. Know and live your baptism. And if you haven't been baptized by the Spirit, then you don't have to pray all night long or wait for somebody to anoint you with some special oil or pray over you with hands, special hands that can bring it to you. If you haven't been baptized by the Spirit, then you repent of your sin and you trust in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior and the Spirit of God will come into you and bring you into union with Christ. And once you've done that, then declare it in the waters of baptism. I believe next Saturday is a good time to do that. Secondly, the second part, verses 5 and following. He wants us to be assured of our union with Christ. He wants us to understand what happened, to believe it, He'll tell us to reckon it to be true. You need, if you're going to have victory over sin, you have to believe that you are united to the one who has actually conquered and defeated sin. You have to believe that. For if we've been united with him in his death, we'll certainly be with, united with him in his resurrection. That is what Gaffin said. You, you don't get parts of Christ when you get him. When you get Jesus, you get his death 
his victory over sin, his payment of the penalty of sin. You get all of that, but you also get his resurrection, this new life, which becomes your new life in some way. So that Paul can say, you know, I'm, I'm crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, but it's not I, it's Christ that lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. You need to know the the wonder of your union with Christ. We were singing about God, about Christ being glorious and wonderful and beautiful. And the more I think about who Jesus is and how all of who he is is mine in a moment when by faith I repent and turn to him. Again, I I like what Louis Burkhoff says. I'll read it again. It's that intimate, vital, spiritual union between Christ and his people in virtue of which he's the source of their life and strength, of their blessedness and salvation, all the good that we need in this life and the good that we'll enjoy for eternity is wrapped up in the person of Jesus Christ and By the Spirit, you are brought into union with all of that. The larger Westminster Catechism, question 69, asks this. What is the communion in grace which the members of the invisible church have with Christ? What is this fellowship, this communion, this union that you and I, the members of the invisible church, have with Christ? And the answer it gives is, the communion in grace, which the members of the invisible church have with Christ, is their partaking of the virtue of his mediation, in their justification, in their adoption, in their sanctification, and whatever else in this life manifests their union with him. That is, if you are a believer in Christ, then whatever Christ has accomplished, whatever he is, that's yours. And then he goes on to tell us that if this is a reality, that you are united to Christ by the Spirit, then you have freedom from sin. Because he says the one who has died has been set free from sin. Now I know Christians, all of us, struggle with something. Hopefully as you begin to walk with the Lord and understand more of what he's done, your life is Changing. I mean, it's sort of trite to say, well, we all sin. It's true. But sometimes that becomes an excuse for, you know, any kind of sin that is happening in, in our lives. But the Bible's telling us that if we're united to Christ, there is no necessity that sin still be our master. Because that's what sin wants to be. It's not content with just giving us pleasure. 
sin's intent is always to enslave you. And Jesus died to break that power of sin. And he calls us to participate in that death by the Spirit so that we die. We're not dying. We died in Christ. We don't have this experience of trying to die over and over again. I hear, I've heard preachers take Paul's statement, statement in 1 Corinthians 15 where he says, I die daily. And make that some you know, spiritual, mystical experience where Paul is dying to sin daily. You know, he's crucifying the flesh daily. He's, he's trying to you know, die daily. But actually, if you read the context, he's simply saying, I face death daily. You know, he's, 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 he's got a risky job preaching the gospel in an antagonistic world. He faces death daily. Paul's saying, you died. It's something final and definite. It's a fact. Believe it. If you've been brought into union with Christ, then his death is your death. Believe it. You died. I appreciate the clarity of Michael Horton, a professor at Westminster Seminary West. This is what he says. He says, it is important to realize that Christ does not come to improve the old self. He doesn't come to guide and redirect it to a better life. He comes to kill us in order to raise us to newness of life. He's not the friend of the old self, only too happy to be of service to self. He is its mortal enemy, bent on replacing it with a new self. Now sin may be very much alive, And it is. But Paul says you reckon yourself to be dead. That that fact, that declaration of God is true. That sin no longer has authority, power over you because you are in Christ. And Christ in his death conquered that and defeated that. John Stott put it this way. He said, our our biography is written in two volumes. Volume one is the story of the old man, the old self of me before my conversion. Volume two is the story of the new man, the new self of me, after which I was made a new creature in Christ. Volume one of my biography ended with the judicial death of the old self. I was a sinner. I deserved to die. I did die in Christ. I received my deserts in my substitute with whom I have become one. Volume two of my biography opened with my resurrection. My old life having finished a new life to God has become, has begun. Now, what I find interesting in Romans is that you read through those 
first five wonderful chapters that are so rich in theology, the theology of human depravity, the theology of the, the, the helplessness and hopelessness of religious activity, and the theology of the justifying work of Christ by his shed blood. You know, it, it, we have this wonderful theological movement through chapter 5 and the beginning of chapter 6. But it's not until verse 11 in the book of Romans that you are actually told to do anything. Amen. There's no command, it's just teaching, it's information, it's stuff you need to grasp, it's stuff you, you need to understand how helpless and hopeless you were apart from Christ. You need to understand why the law could never save you. You need to understand the grace of God in, in Jesus Christ and how the work of Christ justifies the sinner before God. You need to understand that. You need to get your theology right. You need to know what union with Christ is all about. You need good theology. And then he can say in verse 11, the first command is, so also you must Consider this. You must reckon it, as the old translation say. Reckon this to be true. You're dead to sin. You're alive to God. This is what you must do now. All right, here's, here's the truth. Now, you need to believe it. You're not only saved by faith, you're sanctified by faith. You're justified by faith. You're sanctified by faith. We are transformed by continuing to affirm and to believe the victory that God has accomplished for sinners through the person and work of Jesus Christ. Reckon this to be true, that in Christ you died to sin, you've been brought to new life in Christ Jesus. So he's telling us, that if we won't continue in sin, how can we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? He's telling us that we must not only have this union with Christ, we must continually believe it and affirm it. For me, the biggest fight of my life is not the fight against sin. It's the fight to believe. And to keep believing. I find that people that are fighting sin all the time. And not saying that you shouldn't fight sin. But if your focus is simply on fighting sin. Then sin occupies your attention. And you really have no power to fight sin. But if you believe. If you're fighting. To believe what God has said is true. You died. You have new life in Christ. Believe this. Christ has conquered sin and death. Believe it. Reckon it to be true. Ray, Ray Pritchard offers, I think, a good illustration. He tells the story of what he calls the, the tale of a defeated tyrant. I'll read a portion of it to you. Once upon a time, a mighty, terrible tyrant ruled the land. So terrible and so powerful was he that all the people cowered before him. 
They hated him fiercely, but he was so powerful they could do nothing about it. He was a cruel, vindictive taskmaster who abused everyone without exception. He took their money, corrupted their morals. He was evil through and through. One day a man riding a white horse came to town. He challenged the tyrant to do battle with him. The tyrant thought it was a big joke. But when the battle was over, the stranger on the white horse had won and the tyrant was thrown in prison. When the victory was announced, a strange silence fell across the land. The people had lived in bondage so long they couldn't quite believe the good news. Every time they ventured outside, they got scared and returned back home. After all, the tyrant was not destroyed, but only in prison. From time to time, they thought they heard his wild screams and wondered if someday he would get free. If only they had known the tyrant was locked up forever and could never get out. But they knew it not. Life didn't change much. They were so fearful of the tyrant that even... After the battle was over and victory declared, they still lived in abject fear. You get the picture? Were they actually, legally, formally free? Yes! But were they experientially free? No, because they did not believe in their hearts that the tyrant had been conquered. Reckon this. Consider this. Literally keep on considering this. The biggest fight of your life is to believe the wonderful promise that you have in Jesus Christ. To believe the gospel and keep believing the gospel. We fight This is the good fight of faith. We fight to believe. And as we do that, the last three verses talk about how we live in the power of grace. He can actually say, if this is true, If the tyrant is defeated, if sin has been conquered, if its power has been broken, if you're dead in Christ and alive in Christ, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body that you should obey it in its passions. This is your responsibility. The second command. Consider this to be true and then refuse to let an alien, defeated, broken power called sin rule your life. Because you're dead. Believe that you're dead. Sin is tricky comes in through the back door. I remember hearing a preacher one time talk about the front door of sin and the back door of sin. And 
you know, the front door of sin is always appealing. That's why we go that way, whether it's money or sex or drugs or power. It's, you know, it, it, it's enticing to us. But the back door of sin, and he illustrated, you know, the front door of the casino and the back alleys of Atlantic City. They're two different worlds, but they're related. It says that sin wants to get us through our passions, through our, our appetites. And we all have them. Many of them are just God-given appetites, passions, desires. But how they're satisfied is determined by who our ruler is. If we let sin, this defeated, broken power who has no right over us, if we give sin permission to rule our passions, then they'll be used in a way that will be destructive and will not bring glory to God. I mean, we all have physical passions. We want food. We want sex. We want rest. We want pleasure. We have emotional passions. We want Love, we want affirmation, we want praise, we want peace. There's nothing wrong with any of these things. But how do you satisfy them? Who rules those passions? I think John Piper explains it well. He says the desire for food, that is hunger, which serves us well. Nothing wrong with it, but when sin captures it, the desire becomes gluttony, or bulimia, or anorexia. And it rules us for the sake of the enemy. And our tongue and mouth and stomach become weapons of unrighteousness. The desire for drink, thirst, which serves us well, but when sin captures it, the desire may become alcoholism or caffeine addiction, and the tongue becomes a weapon of unrighteousness. The desire for sexual satisfaction, which is a good servant of procreation and a good servant of marriage joy. But if sin captures it, the desire becomes lust for pornography or masturbation or fornication or adultery or homosexual relations and our sexual organs become the weapons of unrighteousness. The desire for rest and sleep which serve us well, but if sin captures it, the desire becomes sloth and laziness. Sin is tricky. But the key to fighting even the deceitfulness and trickiness of sin, the key is believing the gospel. The key is who will rule my life? What will rule my mind? What will capture my thoughts, my imagination? Will it be the beauty, the wonder, the glory of God, of Jesus Christ, of what, what he's done for us in the gospel? Let not sin reign in your mortal body. Instead, he says, choose the legitimate rule of a righteous God. Don't present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who've been brought from death to life. God, here I am. Let my lips reflect 
that I am in union with Christ, having died to sin and risen in his life. Let my eyes reflect my union with Christ. Let my ears, my mind, my hands, my feet, my heart, my intimate parts, let all of me be a reflection that I am in union with Christ. I've died to sin and risen to new life in him. Because it's through grace alone that the power of sin is broken. Sin will have no dominion over you since you're not under law. Law will never give you victory over sin. Self-discipline, legalism. Oh, it may keep you back from doing some things you shouldn't do, but it cannot affect the heart. The law has no power to change what's going on deep inside of me. But grace, we can't explain how that works. How does believing in Christ and resting in Christ and delighting in Christ and loving Christ and thinking about Christ and rejoicing in Christ, how does that bring about victory over sin? And my answer is, I don't know, but it does. It does. So consider yourself to be dead to sin and alive to God through Jesus Christ. Know your baptism, both its reality and its outward demonstration. Have good theology. Know and understand more about your union with Jesus Christ. And live out the grace that God has given you in Christ. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the mercy that you have shown us in Jesus Christ. We thank you that by grace, only because of your deep, deep love, you reached down into our worlds one day and grabbed hold of our hearts and helped us to see how hopeless and helpless we were without your grace. And you showed us the wonder of what you did for sinners in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And you brought us to believe. And you gave us your spirit who brought us into union with Christ and all that he is. God, help us to live lives of rejoicing and resting and reflecting and delighting in Jesus Christ. I pray in his name. Amen.